Good morning. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. That can be found on page 906 in the Pewback Bibles. John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nail, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not, only, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put out his, his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but only about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 
153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. We haven't met before. My name is Julian. Uh, my wife, Kim, and I, we've been members of King's Cross for, shoot, like seven years now? Seven years. So since the Avenue days. So I'm just really thankful to be able to, to dive into this text with you this morning. Um, we're two sermons away from the end of the series, so there's two more, and then we're, we're done with the book of John. But that day has not arrived yet. And so as we look at John and his gospel, John tells us, if you heard in John 20, 30, that the entire purpose of the writing of this account is so that we would believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was, that he is the son of God, and that the revelation and appearance of Jesus is so that we would have faith in him. But I want to I wanna hit the brakes a little bit for a moment on that, and I wanted to talk about movies for a minute uh, because I love movies so much, and this is an opportune time to kind of sneak it in. And uh, the thing I like about movies so much is like being immersed in the world that the, the film is in, that you get to get caught up and captivated in, in the very same place in which this movie is taking place. So... Let me start with saying, like, I really love movies from uh, the Coen brothers. So if you've ever seen Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And if you know me, you've, you've probably heard me talk about that movie plenty of times and quote it. Um, or uh, movies from Frank Darabont or uh, do you have any Wes Anderson fans in here? You're supposed to raise your hand if you actually like him. Man, that's all right. Uh, so like movies like the, the Royal Tenenbaums, one of my personal favorites is Fantastic Mr. Fox. Technically, he didn't write that, but nonetheless, it's a great movie. And so I not only love a good movie, but I'm, I'm drawn in by the, the ups and downs and, and all the quirks and, and everything that makes a story a good story. So take, for instance, if you're paying attention, this is a Frank Darabont movie. Uh, he wrote a movie called Goodwill Hunting, which came out in 1997, a long, long time ago. And Will Hunting is this 20-year-old kid who lives in the slums of Boston. Uh, he's unimaginably smart, yet he spends his days working as a janitor at MIT and fighting with his friends and drinking with his friends. And in the middle of all of his life, all of the ins and outs of fighting and brawling and going from pub to pub, in this hallway that he works at in MIT, where he spends most of his days waxing the floor of this hallway where these classrooms are, there's this chalkboard that sits in the hallway with these insane mathematical equations. And just to mess with people, he starts solving all these equations. He doesn't name himself as the person who's, who's doing all the solving. And so he, he would do that on his breaks, waxing these floors. And so... 
One thing leads to another in, in his daily life. He gets into another fight with, with a neighborhood thug that's picked on him for most of his life. Uh, he gets arrested, and then the, the mathematics chair had discovered prior to all of this that he was the guy who's solving all these problems. And so he shows up at the police station and he, he makes this deal with them like, hey, if you become my protege, I'll bail you out of this situation. You, uh, you just got to see a psychologist and you have to do everything I tell you to do. And so he, you know, reluctantly does it and says, well, it's better than going to prison. So he bails him out. And he, here's, here's the thing. Like, Will in the story, he begins to have really everything at his fingertips, things he had never had, opportunities that he'd never been presented with. He's like the best psychologist that anyone could find. Uh, the professor, this math chair, gets him loads and loads of opportunities. And he falls in love with this girl who, who loves him for exactly who he is. You know, the, the Irish Catholic cussing, the whole nine yards just loves him to bits and pieces. And so he begins to push all of these things away, all of these wonderful things. He has this relationship with his, with his counselor. It's like a, a father-son relationship. He has this beautiful relationship with this woman, and then he's just not taking seriously at all any of these opportunities that are uh, put in front of him. And he's just terrified. But the question is, but why? Why would he be so scared of all these things, all of these wonderfully good things? And the reality is, is because he's been abused too many times. He's been rejected as a kid from the Irish ghettos of Boston. He's seen too much. He's experienced such little good in the world. He doesn't have really any good reasons to trust anybody, even though these people are all worthy of his trust. And he's parked essentially at the corner of this is just, this is all too good to be true. And just really with the thought of there's not a such thing as free lunch. There's no such thing as a happy ending. We look at stories like Cinderella or Annie or Aladdin, and it, it wouldn't be surprising if at any time, like myself, if you've had the thought at the end of these stories and you're like, hey, I love the underdog story, I love that the orphan wins out and is immensely blessed. I love that the, the person on the street is redeemed in the end, and I want it to be real. And, but is this really true to reality? Does this really happen? Do these stories really come true? Or is it, is it just kind of too wonderful in the end? We, we want all of this to be true. We want the world, the upside-down world that we live in, to be turned right side up again, right? We want good to triumph over tragedy. We desire for, for the holiness of God to triumph over the work of the enemy. And the reality is both Thomas and Peter were after what these stories all allude to. And just like we're thinking about right now and pondering together, they, they turn away from all of the goodness and blessing in their own story. But Jesus did not just come so Thomas and Peter would believe before his death, before his resurrection. He appeared after his death, too, so that they would continue on 
and believing. He appears to them after everything, everything that's taken place. After both Thomas and Peter and the rest of the disciples, after they all abandoned Jesus. He appeared to reveal to you and for the rest of the world that it's not too good to be true. The the appearance of Jesus to Thomas and Peter and the others is to demonstrate that it is even more true and better than the happiest of tales and the happiest of stories and the happiest of endings in them. And as we're, we're picking up on, they... They couldn't swagger or manufacture themselves into uh, this assurance or control that they wanted, but God can accomplish that. He can accomplish our assurance. He can do that for me. He can do that for you. He can do that for you. By God's good word before us this morning, He means to proclaim to us that the total victory of God in both life and death and body and soul for the forgiveness of your sins, for the ridding of your shame is brought to us totally in the revelation of Christ Jesus. The the unifying purpose of this text today is that the post resurrection appearance of Christ took place and recorded as John has told us so that we might behold him by faith and by trust and the New Testament is just saturated just completely saturated with examples of appearances and visitations of Jesus and there's a lot so I can't name them all right now we wouldn't have time Uh, but here are a few examples he appeared to Mary Magdalene as a gardener in Mark 6, 9 through 11 in John 20. He appeared to the other two women who were with Mary Magdalene, Salome and Mary, the mother of Jesus in in Matthew 28. He appeared to Peter in Luke 24. He also appeared to two men on the road to Emmaus and he appeared to the apostles on a mountain in Galilee. Scripture has this continuing trail of these accounts because God in his wisdom knows that we must be reminded over and over again as the people of God to continually be reconciled back to the faith in the risen Christ. And if it's true that the gospel is good news, And the gospel itself being news, something that we rehearse over and over again, it itself must be seen as a renewal. Because as we continue to journey through this text this morning, you and I are reminded that like Thomas, we are prone to skepticism. We are prone to cynicism. We're prone to thinking that we can swagger our way into the presence of God or through, through our own self-dignity to get in his good graces. And we ultimately have no true gift to give except our need for him alone. That's the only thing required. And so as we continue to dive into this, would you pray with me? And, and I'll pray for you and you can pray for me. Um, and then we'll journey through the rest of this together. Gracious God, we thank you that 
not only are you risen, but you're here with us now. That you're here, you see inside of each of our souls a great need, a great need to believe. Lord, not only do you see that, but you see who we are personally, the way that you have created us, the way that you have wired us. And you know exactly, exactly what we need, what we need for our faith, what we need for belief, because that is our greatest need, is to abide in you. God, I ask that your word in all of its goodness, Lord, your presence with all its holiness and tenderness, Lord, would move in our hearts this morning, would move in such an unmistakable way that we would find healing for our, our minds and our hearts as we hear of your appearance, as we experience your resurrection. And so I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So there's a few things I want you to know, but I'm just, I'm going to reveal them to you little by little, kind of like a good movie. So here's the first thing you should know. The revelation of Jesus means that he's really with us. He's really here with us. And the disciples at this point, in the beginning, if we look back to John 20, 11, they totally discount Mary's account of the resurrection. They just kind of move past it. That's great. That's nice. I'm sure you saw him, but not really. And so they've bought into that. And they've really, they've kind of all bought into before they see Jesus that, yeah, that's probably too good to be true. He's dead. And they're not expecting it. And so they simply move on. And if we look at verse 19, John tells us that it was the first day of the week. And he talks about the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And so just imagine for a moment with me, you know, what they were thinking, uh, what they were feeling and from the text, we can see they're pretty terrified. They are locked into this shanty, this tiny room. And I expect that they are just quivering behind this door of this, this little room, just hoping to God that the religious rulers aren't going to, to come busting down the door, you know, essentially like the big bad wolf. Um, and it's not surprising that they're afraid, right? I mean, the Jewish leaders have made it where it is not difficult to make sure that those they don't like will go away. What happened to Jesus, the treatment that he received? I mean, but he, he promised the disciples that they would have the same exact treatment. But I think we can... I think we can hardly criticize the disciples for their fear, right? I mean, I have full confidence that I would be incredibly afraid in that situation. I have full confidence that you would be afraid in that situation as well. But the next thing that happens is not the Jewish leaders who come through the door. 
They don't come through the door like it's transparent, like it doesn't even exist. It's the Lord Jesus himself that arrives. And the first thing he says to them is not, why are you hiding out in this room? How many times did I tell you? Or you're still afraid, seriously? He gives them a greeting of blessing and peace. And not only once does he do this, throughout this account, he does this three times. And he says, peace be with you as he comes into the room. He's in the middle of the room, peace be with you. Or if we look at the Hebrew, you know, what Jesus may have said was shalom alehem. Can you say that? That's a fun word. Oh, you guys are supposed to say it. You know, like all together. Uh, I tried. That's all right. Shalom alehem. Peace be with you. And immediately following in verse 22, it says he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so look like, Receive the Holy Spirit. It's only because of the risen Jesus that we can believe. We, we must hear the words of his blessing and receive the reality of true peace that only comes from the Holy Spirit. This is why this is so, so important. He breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. It's only in the resurrection that we can obtain this. As God sends Christ to us, we too can be a means of his grace, of his joy and his kindness to to one another and to strangers. Our lives together can be the broken bread and poured out wine offered to the world through the proclaiming of the gospel of grace. You may ask yourself, like, hey, well, what is the gospel? And the gospel is this, that you are more sinful and broken than you could possibly imagine. And yet, at the same time, that you are more loved, cared for, and seen by God than you could ever dare to dream or hope. That is the gospel of grace And it can be the way not only in which we know that Christ is with us, that we experience peace be with you, but the way in which we can be a city on a hill to the broken, to the broken and and needy sinners just like you and I. Jesus's appearance provokes us to trust and belief. That's the second one. Jesus' appearance provokes us to trust and believe. So if we look in, in verse 24 here, it says, John writing, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's a bold statement, right? 
Like if you take Thomas's statement at more than just face value, he's straighting up, he's straight up just shutting down the other disciples. He was like, that's cool. Unless all of this happens right before my eyes, I don't care. So they are doing, ironically, what's so funny about this passage is they're actually doing exactly what John states at the end of John 20. They're doing exactly that. They're taking the appearance of Jesus and what it's meant to accomplish and proclaiming to their friend the wonderful news of his appearance. But if we're being real for a second and true with our natural inclination, we know that Thomas is asking the question that all of us are honestly asking. Did it really happen? It's an honest longing. It's an honest question, isn't it? With in body and spirit and, and history, did this whole thing called the resurrection, Christ's appearances too, did they really happen? And this is this is incredible what, what Jesus does next. He he invites Thomas to believe. He invites him to trust and to believe, but 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 not just like in a general way, like here's a scripture call me in the morning, but he does it so personally. He so personally calls Thomas to repent and take this 180 back in the other direction. Thomas, put your right hand here in my palm. Look, look at my hands. Place your hand into my side. Don't, don't be an unbeliever anymore. Be a believer. Trust me. So, so Christian, non-believer, whoever you are in this room this morning, let it stand the reason that because of Jesus's reign and eternal victory, he is not afraid of sorrow. He's not afraid of suffering. He's not afraid of your or your earthiness. He knows. What is with Tyler? God with Kaylin. God with us. He is with you. Christ knows the nature of your struggles. He knows your doubts about tomorrow or even your doubts for right now, for today. The writer and theologian Dale Bruner says, Jesus's appearance to Thomas honors both Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, both his humanity and his deity, both his wounds and, and his victory. Both his wounds and his victory. And I'm, and I'm wondering this morning, like Thomas, you know, what are your wounds? What are you trying to find victory in this morning? Where do you find yourself at in the very seat that you're sitting in? Because Christ came, came as the wounded healer to touch those wounds. As Thomas touched the wounds of Jesus, he offers himself to you this morning, beloved. 
a revelation of Jesus invites us into communion with him. And what's fascinating about Peter's response when he realizes what's happening is both similar and different to Thomas's. Similar because they both experience this, this epiphany of faith. Thomas cries, my Lord and my God. And after having the realization that Jesus is alive and then the beloved disciple in 21.7, after realizing that it is Jesus and they, they catch this giant net of fish, the beloved disciple cries, it's the Lord. And Peter, you know, he's, he's practically naked. It says that uh, he was stripped down for work for the day. And so he, he hops off the boat and they're on this fishing trip and he just like books it at like 20 knots across the water, you know, just to get to Jesus. And the key difference between the response of Thomas and the response of Peter at the appearing of Jesus and one responds like, like waking up to reality with Thomas with his doubt and his wonder. And the other one, like, you know, it's like a bottle rocket. He just like instantly is like belief and worship. He just jumps right into it. And the, you know, I think about Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, and the, the message paraphrase, we'll call it, puts it this way. The moment they saw him, they worshiped him. Some, though, held back, not sure about worship or about risking themselves totally. But even as we approach worshiping God, uh, again, Dale Bruner notes the commonality that we have with both Thomas and Peter. We too are a combination of belief and doubt, of worshiping and wondering. The appearance of Jesus is not at odds with our humanness. The reality of faith in Jesus is not at odds with your humanness. Jesus' first response to them, what is it as they're all reunited again? It could have been like a whole host of things that he could have 100% justly said. Why didn't you recognize me? Why are you back in Galilee? Peter, I can't believe, not once, but twice, three times, you were so ashamed of me. No, like his response, the first thing he asks in, in 21 and in verse 5, he says, children, do you have any fish? He calls them children. He could have just totally plowed into them and he calls them his children. He didn't like try to use the fact that he just caught them all this fish and make a sarcastic response later on about his helping him. No, his response is to present them with fish ready to eat bread. And he says to them in 2112, after their initial conversation, after they finally see that it's him, he says, come and have breakfast. And he gives them twice they needed. He gave them 153 fish and he has this feast 
waiting for them on the beach on a charcoal fire. He gives them twice what they need. The body of Christ, like we see Jesus doing right here, is to be a place of relationships, of of love and fellowship with God and, and one another. The church is a place where you need not worry because it is the place where no matter where you've been or if you've been a Christian for 15 months or 15 years, whatever it is, we're all learning to rehearse the ABCs of the Christian faith over and over again. The great appearances of Jesus reveal that the pouring of our hearts before him with our, our questions, our, our curiosities, and our wonders are overcome not by putting on your, your best brave face, but through the ordinary means of grace. Jesus reveals that to us in, in this place on the beach where he's having the meal of the means of grace of the Christocentric word and meals and prayer and community. These are the means by which God says to us in our hearts, it's the Lord, it's him. He shows us that he, he breaks bread on the beach with those who sin against him. Those he, he died to bring into union with himself. And through the work of Jesus, whatever you have done, wherever you have been, wherever you are right now today, Jesus is revealed to you again and again in moments like this so that you may believe in him. To taste in spirit-empowered renewal, to receive the good news over and over again that God loves sinners and sufferers. He is the one who has appeared to sinners and sufferers so that they might believe the good news. Beautiful is the feet of those who give good news. You've received assurance in the finished work of Christ, the assurance of our pardon. This is what Jesus is doing on the beach when he says, come children, come and have breakfast. The resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our thinking. And Christ is saying to us in his word, you can't run the race at your own strength, but take heart, I I can run for you. The, The power of the resurrection shows us how the full revelation of God is is not somehow the supernatural triumphing over the natural. Jesus' resurrection is the natural. What it is demonstrating to the world is that this is exactly what the kingdom of God in its fullness coming to town on earth will be like. The good news is not our projection of hope, It's the reality of God's power over death and life itself. That is the projection of hope onto the world because of God's presence. Because every square inch of the universe written on it says mine. With Christ's church throughout the ages, we take not only the belief of the experience of our own spiritual resurrection, but the historic reality 
that he literally got on his two feet and he peels death off just like some old clothes thrown in a hamper. The basis of our hope is that neither graves nor nails nor flower beds or roots or anything will be able to hold down those united to him. That there is nothing in heaven and on earth. There's nothing in hell. There is nothing that can keep us from the saving work and the forgiveness of Christ. The marriage feast of Christ and his bride will bring his own hand in hand with his pierced hands. And this is the one statement you can stake your whole life and eternity on is these words that are the seal of the risen Lord Jesus. Peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so, I am sending you. Let's pray. Father, would you meet us now in this moment? Would you meet us here? We welcome the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And Lord, you welcome our doubts. You welcome our questions. And Lord, our questions, our curiosities, our thoughts of, of the resurrection, of your appearance. We see from, from Thomas and from Peter, Lord, that they were not cast out of the kingdom for their struggles. And so neither are we cast out of the kingdom for our struggles. That you tell us, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. So would you give me rest? Would you give us rest? Lord, would you meet us in our personal needs? Would you meet us with the power of the resurrection? Would we be surprised by hope? And so we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.